0: Everything will be fine, with the exception of Syria, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, and Iran. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and this is the Editors' Roundtable. Today I'm joined by Lara Jakes, deputy managing editor of FP News. Also with us is Ed Luce, the Financial Times' chief U.S. commentator and columnist based in Washington, D.C. Recently. From both our tiny podcast studio high above Washington's DuPont Circle and the Slate Group studio in Lower Manhattan's hip village quarters, we had the following conversation. So welcome back. We're early in the year 2016, and as we look around, we start to see in the horizon, on the horizon, the kind of amorphous shapes of stories that are coming us at us for the year. And I'd like to talk about some of those stories that seem to be shaping up as likely big stories of the year. Over the course of the first couple of weeks of this year, it looks like the global economy is in real trouble. Global stock markets have taken unprecedented hit, taking them bringing them down into bear market territory, There's real worries about emerging markets led by China, but also including markets like um, Brazil and Turkey and India and elsewhere. Um, And so one of the stories we haven't really had to deal with for the past few years is economic crisis. Ed Luce, you're with the Financial Times. No other publication in the world understands these trends better than the Financial Times. Is this likely to continue throughout 2016 as a big story?
1: I I think so, yes. Um, Look, I mean, we're we're already getting into just just four weeks, five weeks after the Fed finally raised interest rates. We're already already getting into the phase where uh, not just Fed watchers, but one or two people on the board of the, the, the Federal Reserve are regretting or hinting heavily that they regret that decision as being premature. And I think the reason for that is that even in the in the in the last few weeks, the degree to which there is a, a china led emerging market slowdown has sunk in all the more than it had in the last sort of six months of two thousand and fifteen, and the depth uh, or, or rather the sort of the the, the extent of that slowdown um, is being um, more appreciated as time goes on there in terms of more proximate causes of worries about growth in two thousand and sixteen. There's clearly, you know, a, a commodities super cycle downturn and commodities super cycles as your friend and, and my, our mutual friend Daniel Jurgen keeps reminding us, t- uh, go in 10, 12, 15 year phases, upswings and downswings. And we're in, we're, we're only about a third of the way if that measure is correct into a downswing. Um, oil is below $30 a barrel. Um, the other commodities have had equivalent price declines. And for the vast majority of emerging markets, that is a major hit um, to their export um, growth. Of course, it's good news um, for importers like China and India, um, but China is is slowing down pretty sharply for other reasons. So that those are the sort of trends. The shocks that could potentially exacerbate that um, are China devaluing the B. By 2025%, all its competitors have seen their currencies depreciate 20-30% against the US dollar, um, but China has held firm. Um, how long can it withstand um, that pressure? Probably not very long. Um, and if China does give in and, and devalue, and de facto devalue, mm-hmm. that will be a, a seismic shock. To the global economy, and it would incidentally be a, a major shock to um, a, a U.S. presidential election. But I know we're not discussing that.
0: No, no. Look, we're looking for the story. And remember, I'm I'm conjuring up amorphous dark images on the horizon that will be the big stories of the year. If China devalues its currency, you're going to have a presidential campaign which will be about who can beat up on China the most, right, Laura? Mm-hmm.
2: Sure, um, you know, and China recently has been reluctant to join the U.S., especially in condemning North Korea for North Korea's recent missile test or or, uh, or bomb test. I mean, it looked like not a hydrogen bomb, but there was some kind of massive explosion that happened. Uh, not too long ago, China has been reluctant to issue massive sanctions, although they s- slowly have been coming around. So China has always been a place where the United States can uh, draw a, a natural kind of enemy, um, and it has been in this administration's interest to, to perpetuate that a little bit for trades um, and the economy's benefit. And if China continues to go down... That will only be another talking point for the current presidential field. Um, I do want to kind of talk a little bit about oil prices. Uh, our one of our smart writers here at foreign policy, Keith what, Johnson. What? Oh. Yeah, yeah. One of our many <laughs> brilliant writers here at foreign policy, I was like, Keith Johnson. What is it? They're
0: like different categories. Well, we have our smart writers and then there's the other ones. And so
2: Noted. Uh, <laughs> striking that from the record prosecutor. <laughs> um, so Keith wrote recently about why we should not freak out about oil prices and commodity prices right now. Uh, and I think one of the the talking points that came out of Davos, although you recently returned from Davos and you can speak to this if you like, David, was that uh, in the next six months, the price of oil per barrel will probably go back up, that it's hitting a low now. It probably will go back up by the end of the year. Keith wrote that one reason for this is because um, the production of oil is going to start to slow. And so there will be less oil on this right now glutted market. And that I only mention this because I think that's going to upend this whole debate about China and the economy and also underscore that sometimes we just don't know. I'll be Donald Rumsfeldian in here. We, we don't know the unknowns right now.
1: So presumably that means that the slowdown in U.S. production, because so many people are losing money and can't produce at these prices, the cut in American production will exceed the new supply coming in from Iran. Because there's a big new supply line potentially coming in there.
2: Yeah, but it's not that big, right? I mean, it's only a couple hundred thousand barrels a day, Mm -hmm. right? And it also isn't just about U.S. production. Investment in oil production is going to slow considerably because there's going to be less money to put into it, right? Since the price of oil is down, that there's going to be less money to play with, ergo less money to put in uh, new infrastructure for oil Mm -hmm. production. And so there will be less oil on the market. Demand is still going up, although it's slowing.
0: Yep. Fair enough. Yeah. But that, I mean, look, that's a smart analysis. But it also there's also a lot of other smart analysis out there that suggests that low oil prices will be there for a while. And it gets us to another of the lurking stories on the horizon, which is the tensions that flared up uh, towards the end of last year and the beginning of this year between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Now you have Iran with sanctions being lifted. And all of a sudden, we're starting to see what sanctions being lifted meant. But it's not just that the money is flowing back in. It's that lots of investors are showing up. And I saw one figure recently, $30 billion in new investing. Iran is getting substantially strengthened economically. It's at the table in a new way. It's making the Saudis uncomfortable for all the reasons that we used to think of. But... If Iran coming on the market with oil pushes the price of oil down around 30 into the 20s for much longer, the Saudis have a really serious problem, don't they, in terms of being able to pay the bills? What
2: I've read is that Iran only produces a million barrels, 1.1 million barrels a day, and Saudi produces far, far more. Right? I mean, is it even apples and oranges?
1: I think there's a marginal tipping point there, there isn't there? I mean, if you've got, first, for the sake of you know uh, argument, I can't remember the exact numbers. If you've got demand for eighty-one million barrels a day, global demand, and you've got an eighty-five million or an eighty, sorry, eighty-three million production, is a gap something like that? The figures might be a little bit off, and you go up from eighty-three to eighty-five, that margin doubles, even though it's a tiny proportion of the overall production. That that margin between
0: supply and demand doubles. There's a lot of thinking that this is going to add pressure and that the tensions between them could have other effects, right? So one of the other effects is they are less cooperative on issues like Syria. And if you don't have Iran and Saudi Arabia cooperating on Syria, how are you likely to get to a deal on Syria? I also think as we look towards Syria deal for the year, not too long ago, former senior administration official Tom Donlan made a statement to the effect that he thought the U.S. would have to become much more involved in Syria than it had been as the situation continues to evolve. Uh, How do we see that story playing out over the next several months?
2: Yes there is a there's a huge schism between Saudi and Iran on how to deal with the Syria question but as large of a schism is Saudi and Russia both Iran and Russia are helping Bashar al-Assad he's their dog in this fight and so you can see where Riyadh might say I don't trust not just Iran, our kind of longtime natural enemy, religious enemy, but also Russia on this. I mean, why would we all work together? But the fact of the matter is is that the Syrian opposition is completely fragmented right now. You have the factions that Riyadh is backing. You have the factions that... Uh, Moscow is backing. You have the faction that Cairo is backing. And then you have the United States and the UN trying to broker some kind of agreement to get everybody to the table when some factions will not play in the same sandbox with other factions. So that is what is going to have to be resolved first and foremost. And whether or not, I mean, we have now seen this, this negotiating process drag out for weeks, if not months there will be some more meetings in the next couple of weeks that we will see whether or not this will shake out. I would not be surprised at all if it doesn't. There seems to be a, a general agreement to disagree. You do have to ask at some point if people really do want to find a solution, because there is no willingness to compromise on any sides right now.
1: Um, the, if if I could sort of put in a potential point of light, I don't this isn't a prediction, but, you know, I think the Saudis, even if they did change their mind on oil production, are not going to, you know, OPEC's too small a share of the world market to get a cartel together to cut production, to to drive prices up. So Saudi Arabia, for the foreseeable future, is going to be in dire fiscal straits. And it's got, you know, one of the youngest populations in the world, and it's got deep-seated, particularly with the new king and his son, the deputy crown prince, deep-seated concerns about its political legitimacy and, and, you know, fiscal, uh, dollops of fiscal um, largesse have helped ease that in the past. That's not going to be so easy. So Saudi on the one hand, Russia, ditto. Russia is, you know, on the economic ropes. Putin's high um, approvals ratings are plummeting. Um, He is beginning to sound a lot more emollient on things like Crimea, Ukraine, I mean, Eastern Ukraine, and indeed on the Syria talks situation because of the prospect of continued declines in, in oil and gas prices. And then finally, Iran, if we're talking about the sort of three biggest external players other than the United States. Finally, Iran is potentially, I mean, and this is a really going out on a limb, potentially less unconstructive mode. Um, than its normal destabilizing role because there is a lot of money being unfrozen because of sanctions relief there's going to be a lot of deals being done, like the recent Airbus deal to buy a lot of Airbuses, they want to buy Boeings too. That the, there is potentially, if you're seeing the glass half full, in Iranian, greater Iranian stake in not destabilizing the re- region than there was before. All of which could push tired, exhausted, or in Iran's case, slightly less negative players into different positions. I couldn't possibly produce a prediction out of this. <laughs> Um, but I think it's a moving feast of very complex parts, and it's, it's even harder to predict than almost anything else.
0: Sounds like you've been out drinking with Ben Rhodes. <laughs> Does he drink? I have no idea. I just It just sounds a little bit like, well, yeah, this could all be fine, and mm-hmm. Iran could behave really great, although they never have.
2: Well, Iran's got their hands full of some domestic issues right now as well. The president, Hassan Rouhani, had worked very hard to get implementation day done before some upcoming elections in late February that will start to decide kind of who – it's an election for a group of people who will decide who is the successor to um, the supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. And this is a hugely important election for President Rouhani because it will determine whether or not Iran's political domestic leaders hew to this more moderate track that Rouhani has tried to set since he was elected in 2013, or if it will start to go back to a more um, right-wing position as what we have seen uh, from the 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 Islamic Republic for for decades now, so they they've got Iran has its hands full as well, um, and let's also not forget what another I mean Iran less so but some something that Saudi cares more about maybe even more than than Syria is Yemen the civil war right next to them and it is not going particularly well for the Saudi led air campaign and Yemen. And I think that uh, Saudi and the United Arab Emirates, uh, which is supporting in that air campaign, are both quietly but desperately looking for ways out of that, even if they can't admit that publicly. Well,
0: it sounds like the Middle East is going to be just great for the rest of the year. <laughs> <laughs> no need to worry, really. Yeah. The, well, the president, though, you know, things are going to be fine with ISIS soon, right, guys. I mean, Laura, you yeah. were the Baghdad bureau chief of the Associated Press. What what, 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 what is your sense of how the battle against ISIS is going?
2: My sense uh, is a little more dark than what the administration and the Pentagon says about the situation in Ramadi, uh, which is a city in western Iraq um, that Iraqi security forces that are backed by the United States recently, quote unquote, liberated. I'm not really sure how people are defining liberated Ramadi, by the way, is
0: known as the Flint, Michigan of Iraq.
2: The water is actually better in Ramadi than it is in Flint, Michigan.
0: It's the Ramada in yeah. Iraq.
2: <laughs> I never heard that, but I like it. The, the troops used to call it crazy Ramadi. So, uh, and they used to have a – David, you were talking earlier about rap. They had a nice little rap song I'll bring up for you guys at the next podcast. That's
0: good. Then we can bring up what they used to call you.
2: We will see, um, you know, if, if Iraqi troops can hold on to Ramadi. I suspect they will not. I suspect that the bright, shiny object will shift off of Ramadi at some point and onto to another battlefield, whether it's the oil refinery in Beji, whether it's Mosul. Everybody wants to take Mosul. That's where the Islamic State is headquartered in Iraq. That's going to be a very, very, very hard fight that's going to require many, many resources. And once we, we the grand we being Iraq, being the United States being the Shia militias, um, the the sons of Iraq. And our Iranian
0: Iranian allies.
2: Well, Shia militias backed by Iran, yeah. Um, Once we take our eye off Ramadi and look at Mosul, I suspect that the Islamic State will start moving back into Ramadi. I mean, for example, they still hold Fallujah. And Fallujah is 45 minutes away in Anbar province in Iraq.
0: Right. And they took Fallujah two years ago. And when we supposedly kicked them out of Ramadi in the great victory of several weeks ago, which apparently was not really a great victory, there were 300 or 350 ISIS soldiers in Ramadi versus 10,000 Iraqi soldiers. Uh, So essentially what we're doing is pushing the food around on our plate. And when we squeeze one place, they go someplace else and so forth. So it looks like you know the notion of somehow being able to achieve great gains uh, is going to be elusive. So this overview that we've got so far of the Middle East suggests that everything will be fine, with the exception of Syria, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, and Iran.
2: Everything's great. everything's sunny in Kuwait,
0: yeah, <laughs> Kuwait is fine. Oman. It's doing great. Wonderful. Muscat is a real a nice destination. A haven of stability. A haven of stability. And then, of it's course— It's
2: too hot there to do to be angry.
0: Yeah. Well, OK. That's possible. And then, you know, we, we haven't really gotten into Afghanistan. Well, let's get into Afghanistan for a second. Guys, you know, we don't talk about it very much. We're sort of leaving. But the Taliban seems to be gaining strength. It's quite possible that by the time Barack Obama leaves office, the Taliban will be stronger than they had been at any time since September 11th, 2001. True or false?
1: Well, let me take a stab at it. I'll be more interested in Lara's answer, but I'll get me out of the way. I'm not sure how, how quickly um, the administration is leaving now. I, mean, I think General Cartwright who's in charge of operations there. You know, it was just very sensibly succeeded in expanding um, offensive targeting permission to include ISIS in Afghanistan um, because ISIS is getting an increasing franchise in portions of of the country there um, general Campbell i do I do apologize there is clearly um, a blowback you 've got a very odd situation between Pakistan and Afghanistan where you know you 've got uh, the Pakistan Taliban operating from Afghanistan and Islamabad complaining. To Kabul about it, which is a mirror image of what the problem has been for most of the f- last 15 years, namely that the Afghan Taliban have been operating from within Pakistan and Kabul has been complaining to Islamabad about it. So you might again to sort of put a, put a positive gloss on this, you might actually get some kind of agreement um, between Kabul and Islamabad that has been so elusive for the last 15 years to actually do joined-up anti-Taliban operations. That's the best that can be said for the next year. But I don't think, you know, I think the maximum um, number of American troops consistent with Obama fulfilling his promise to have withdrawn from Afghanistan will be left there, and that General Campbell will be pushing very hard for that because it's it's not looking good on the ground.
0: By the way, I want to insert something parenthetically here. When I made reference to your nickname, it was nothing disparaging. You have one of the most badass nicknames of anybody I know, and I'm not going to discuss it here on the air. But I did. It was a. It was an homage to your badassness.
2: My Iraq nickname was Bitch Kitty, so which is a nickname I'm kind of proud of. So I'll just put it right out there. Okay.
0: Like, well, no, no. If you want to put it out there, I, d- I definitely think it's a tribute to the fact that you were a badass war correspondent.
2: Well, thank you very much. Going back to Afghanistan and Pakistan, I want to kind of focus on something that Ed mentioned. I have been very interested in what's going on with the spread of the Islamic State in Afghanistan of recent. Um, We saw this coming more than a year ago, I think, or about a year ago. And more importantly, the Obama administration saw this coming a year ago. And th- at that point, they there was an internal argument within the administration on whether or not the ISIS fighters or the people who had pledged allegiance to Daesh in Afghanistan should or could really be considered Islamic State. Um, they call themselves the Korsan province of Islamic State. And The concern of the administration at that point was, well, if we consider them to be Islamic State, we have just broadened the war against ISIS beyond Iraq and Syria. And we don't really want to do that. We want to focus all of our assets on Iraq and Syria. We need to really kill Islamic State at its core. That's all fine and good, and, you know, there are a lot of merits to that argument. But the problem is, is that we don't really control how the Islamic State Spreads, right? And so, as this conversation was going on about Afghanistan, the Islamic State was also spreading into Libya. It was also spreading into the Sinai um, Peninsula in Egypt. People in Boko Haram um, were pledging allegiance to the Islamic State. And so, what we have seen in the last couple of months, and certainly over the last years, the administration is grudgingly saying, okay, yeah, I guess you're right. We should have called them the Islamic State from the get go. Maybe we would have had a better chance at stopping, at deterring, um, and maybe not. Maybe there was nothing to do about it. But I think that this is going to be the big game changer in – I'm sorry – in Afghanistan, not as much as the Taliban.
0: Well, it doesn't sound like a particularly pretty picture, and we haven't even gotten into what's going on in in Pakistan. Um, As we look towards, uh, say, Europe – Ed, uh, mm-hmm. Brexit? Yeah, well, the
1: timetable for, for Brexit, you know, um, or potential Brexit for the referendum on Britain's membership of the EU is David Cameron seems to to want to go sooner rather than later. So we're now looking at June, which means he's got to try and wrestle some kind of deal that he can put to the British electorate that persuades them that Europe has somehow changed its ways to suit Britain. Um, uh, Now, the likelihood of, in substance, Europe actually doing that, because Europe, for all intents and purposes, means Merkel and Hollande of France to some degree. The likelihood, given all the things that are on Merkel's plate, she's, she's essentially fighting for her job now with the refugee crisis in Germany, her partners are fighting to retain the character of Europe, or some of her partners are, by maintaining um, open borders between member states. Other partners in Europe are doing their best to to close those borders um, uh, the, the The chances of Cameron getting her to you know agree to amend um, internal EU treatment of migrants um, uh um namely that there's uh, only a certain period of time um after which they can claim benefits in whichever country they reside which is would be to break a sort of basic eu principle uh, amongst other cosmetic more cosmetic changes cameron wants the chances of him achieving that go down all the time so he 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 knows europe's going to get worse therefore he wants the referendum to happen sooner because the terms of tra- his terms of trade, as it were, get worse, progressively worse as time goes on. So, you know, this is actually quite, quite a sort of going to be a very intensive four or five month period for Cameron to get what he wants. Now, going for him is the fact that nobody wants Britain to leave Europe. Well, nobody except, you know, British nativists. And there are quite a lot of those, but, you know, hopefully not a majority. Nobody in Europe wants Britain to leave Europe. Um, it, it could tip the balance the whole way. And there's already worries about the EU unravelling. If, uh, you know, its second largest economy leaves, um, that that could be a cue to so many others. You see that Poland has got a right-wing government. Um, Hungarians have, uh, have had for a while a right-wing government. Greece is deeply disaffected. It's being asked to cope with the migrant problem, but getting zero debt forgiveness from Germany. If Britain left the European Union, um you could see an unraveling of the whole project or, or a further dramatic loosening so I, so that's what cameron's got going for him is you, you know they they want him to win this referendum um but the clock is the clock is ticking this will be a major event whichever way it goes in 2016 if you want a prediction from me I think they'll just cling on. I think I think there'll be a sort of a narrow majority in favor of staying in, because
0: the British aren't particularly radical when push comes to shove. Laura, what town did you grow up in?
2: Fairfax, Virginia.
0: 20 miles away from D.C. Do you think anybody in Fairfax, Virginia knows what the Brexit is or cares? I'm
2: fairly certain that people are aware of the Brexit, but why do you ask?
0: Well, I grew up in New Jersey, and nobody in New Jersey even knows. You know, you're like running contrary to my whole point here, which is that like middle America, (laughs) does like middle America give a crap about the EU or not? No, it's not an issue in Iowa,
1: that's for sure, in either campaign uh, or New Hampshire.
0: Do Do you think it would be a campaign issue? Do you think... You could imagine Donald Trump making an impassioned plea for Britain to stay in the EU in the midst of his campaign for the presidency.
1: Britain's trying to deny Donald Trump a visa, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not sure he's very happy with Britain. But that's not although that's not going to happen. It was a petition. But um sorry, Laura. Uh,
2: no, do
0: you no, think no.
1: Would this would this play in the campaign? Does this have Britain's any does,
0: does anything can you imagine that anything happening in Europe other than a terrorist attack will resonate During the political campaign?
2: No, because I hate to say it, but most Americans are so insular and only looking at domestic issues. We have seen the value of the euro drop um, dramatically from a year ago. I mean... When I was traveling to Europe with Secretary Kerry a year and a half ago, I mean, we were paying a lot of money. I go to Rome um, every couple of months uh, now, and the euro and the U.S. are almost on parity, and it's fantastic. Frankly, I'm very, very happy about that. So I suppose for the people who are going over to Europe and want to take advantage of a low euro, euro and a you know stable, I guess an unstable euro zone, that if they will care about that, but is Hillary talking about that? Is Donald Trump talking about that? Will Michael Bloomberg talk about that? I doubt it.
0: well, as we look at the campaign and we look at the you know the 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 international issues that may resonate during that campaign, what are they going to talk about? Refugees? You mean keeping them out or that kind of thing?
2: That is such a central point to the campaign because, Both sides are making the – or or at least having to address the argument of America was built as a land of immigrants – And here America is shutting out immigrants left, right and center, whether they're coming from the southern borders, from Mexico and Central America, or whether they're coming from Europe or whether they're coming from the these horrible war zones, which, by the way, the United States is party to in some effect. And we're shutting them out as well. I think that that's something that both sides are going to have to address. I think that's going to be a pivotal point in this election.
0: Ed, what are the not the top two issues that are going to be discussed in the campaign? I'd like to know what issues three through six are. In the unlikely event
1: Rubio is the nominee, you will actually have the Republican nominee and the Democratic nominee, whether it's Hillary or Sanders, arguing over who is has the better plan to lift people's incomes and, and wages and provide them with the jobs of the future. And I think uh, that would be the sign, a sign of a very healthy, rational democracy debating what is most important to its future. Um, Clearly, terrorism is going to be an issue. Um, wait wait a minute! Event.
0: Did you just call the United States a very healthy, rational democracy? No,
1: in <laughs> that in that unlikely scenario that, well, you know, it's not it's not that unlikely a scenario. I mean, it's not that improbable a scenario. If if however Trump is the nominee, he's not going to be discussing these issues. He's going to be, you know, um, scapegoating points three to six. Um, and, you know, he has, he has a trick up every sleeve. He knows every dark art of public relations and of, um, you know, news cycles. And he's got all sorts of ways of um, reaching American, uh, the fears of Americans um, that, that are not to do with economic development. If
0: we were going to have a rational discussion about U.S. foreign policy, shouldn't we focus primarily on... Enhancing ties, opening borders, strengthening opportunities with Canada and Mexico since that's likely to have the biggest effect on the most Americans? Look, I just I think we get the priorities all you know, there's thirty thousand people in ISIS, there's some small threat that they pose. You know, the Chinese economy is gonna go up, it's also gonna go down. This happens in the world, these things happen. The Middle East is a mess, it's not gonna affect us that much we have stuff we got to do there but you know even what's going on in europe is not going to affect us as much as we talk about it we talk about all these things a lot but if you want to say what could affect the most people in the most substantial way you could have a five percent improvement in trade with canada or mexico would be dramatically more than
1: most i I think david is smitten by justin trudeau
2: this is all about trudeau pretty much we should get you that uh, tank top that has justin trudeau's face on it riding a horse david
0: i'm wearing that as we speak here
2: I just threw up in my mouth. Listen, (laughs) Canada is the United States' largest trading partner. Americans don't go to Canada. They don't take the advantage of going across the border to Canada as often as they could. Uh, The Department of Homeland Security was trying to help facilitate more cross-border Traffic and more trade and more tourism a couple of years ago. And they found that Americans didn't want to spend the $100 required to go get a passport to go over when the borders somewhat closed and you needed a little bit more documentation after 9 11 to go across the border than your driver's license. And, you know, Americans said, I'd rather spend that money on something else than go get a passport. And so, yes. Should more people go over? Should there be better cross-border traffic? Should we be opening up these very obvious venues to increase economic diversity for both countries, all three countries, if you want to go NAFTA about it? Yeah, we we should, and we could, but the fact of the matter is that many Americans, most Americans do not, by choice. Not something that maybe a presidential candidate can encourage.
0: Don't you think that – like, I mean, you know, Mexico – There's this drug war. People are dying all the time. And I just saw today, the day we're doing that, another journalist died someplace in Mexico. There's all this awful stuff happening there, usually with American guns. So you have American guns going. You have American demand for drugs. If we could somehow go and address that core problem, you'd probably save money more lives than you would with anything that you could do in the war on terror. And if you opened up the trade between these two places, there's a million possibilities for growth that we don't explore. Uh, because we've allowed the relationship to fester in the place that it's festering.
2: And that's been the case for a decade plus at this point, right? I mean, there is no magic silver bullet to cure this. And you one does have to wonder... Why it is that, you know, with all of the money that's thrown at combating terrorism elsewhere, why do we not just focus that maybe down at some of these drug cartels? I think that a a massive victory was gotten recently with the uh, apprehension of El Chapo. And I think he's going to be extradited back to the United States for prosecution. What's that really going to do? Maybe it'll shut down the cartel. Maybe he's got an heir apparent. Will that really deter more people? Kind of doubtful.
0: All right, Ed, we've traveled the world. We've talked about, you know, the Chinese economy. We've talked about the commodity supercycle. We've talked about Iran. We've talked about its boom. We've talked about Saudi, Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Europe. We haven't talked about Africa, although Lord knows there will be stories from there and a lot of bad stuff happening, particularly as terrorism spreads there. Talked about Canada and Mexico. What big, looming, dark, mysterious shape on the horizon or perhaps something bright and shiny? that is likely to be a big story for the year ahead, uh, have we ignored that we ought to be paying attention to?
1: There are two things here, and they're related. The first, I'd say, is um, a sort of larger crisis of democracy. Um, you know, the whole sort of post-Cold War, oh, there's just only one model of government, and there are minor variations between the Jeffersonian versus Westminster and whatever. That debate is now up sort of... Um, very much in the past. Um, I think that the most developed, wealthiest countries in the world are having democracies that are, to one degree or another, going haywire. And this is being noticed, you know, not just amongst sort of young Arabs who, you know, might or might not sympathize with ISIS, but amongst young Chinese, too, and amongst um, people all over the world. Africa, you just mentioned, you know, there are many there are many political systems in question there in the balance and uh, i think you know as a shining bright example of the way government should be the west is is under the microscope um so i think that's sort of point 1 that's not really going to be uh, a, a, you know a surprise um that that's a, a theme of 2016 but it's 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 worth it's worth repeating that this is this is a really, really important um, transition phase we 're going through, um, and I think the second is um, you know to go back to um, the predictions of um, you know five million jobs being lost to artificial intelligence in in the coming years seems like uh, like a pretty low prediction, but even that number um, that number caused um, all sorts of um, breast beating and and um, gnashing of teeth about the impact of AI on employability we're going to more and more be scrutinizing the trade-off between allowing technology to go where it will which it should be allowed to do and the redistributive effects um, that we will need to put in place um, in order to keep society happy and democratic because the gains from ai and robotics and all the other amazing super intelligent technological advances that we're seeing the gains are increasingly disproportionately skewed to the very top echelons. So there are distribution questions about, not economics, but about how we value people in society. And I think that's how the West handles that debate um, and handles that challenge will go some way towards answering the first point I posed is, does
0: democracy work? Wow, that is a big, thoughtful answer and very unusual for this podcast. Uh, Laura, can you, can you come up with something superficial and ideally, um, <laughs> state a, of the Kardashians, something like that, a little bit more to what our listeners are accustomed to?
2: Uh, I can take a stab, but first I want to pay homage to Ed for being king of the nerds, since that is a title we uh, have been banding about on. Some of these programs, uh, I that was pretty spectacular, sir. That
0: was a nerdy answer. <laughs> no. Thank you. I like I take that king the of compliment. the nerds. No, no. And in, in this podcast, that's about as high as the praise gets.
2: <laughs> right. We mean that in the best possible way.
0: <laughs> Thank you.
2: So, uh, you know, Ed talks about a democracy going haywire or a government going haywire. And um, I am very curious about what is going to happen in the Vatican over the next year, the next two years.
0: The Vatican? It's like a little smut. It's not a little. It's not even really you a know, big country.
2: That is laying down the law for how many millions, if not billions, a billion, of Catholics worldwide? A billion. A billion. A bi- OK. Well, I am not Catholic, so uh, I am looking at this with a total outsider's point of view. But I am just fascinated. You have this pontiff um, who is grappling with the church on progressive issues, talking about gay marriage, talking about, you know, um, forgiving women uh, to some extent for abortions, for trying to figure out divorce in the Catholic Church, trying to bring the church into a new generation. Um, You have a pope who's very political. He met very recently with President Hassan Rouhani of Iran. Um, He has been going around kind of being a very political pope, talking about political issues of the day, very social issues of the day, when it comes to, you know, peace, when it comes to uh, the migrant refugee crisis in Europe. He is really far more out there, far more vocal than we have seen popes um, in the very recent past. I think he's far more vocal than Benedict was, for example. And, you know, Francis says quite regularly, pray for me. Um, because I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to be around. Uh, I think he said that he's only going to be pope for two or three more years. He came in in 2013. This would be a very short tenure for a pope. Um, and so I'm just very curious. Uh, which direction will the Catholic Church go once Francis leaves? Can he make some reforms to bring the church into a new generation? Or actually, I think more succinctly, bring a new generation to the church? Um and he the, – the the American church, for example, and I think the African church is very opposed to some of these reforms he wants to make. I think Europe is a little more open. There are some other places that are a little more open. But, you know, the American Catholic um, Conference of Bishops are very opposed to some of these things that Francis has been trying to do. And so where that's going to go is going to be fascinating.
0: Um you want to know something? Despite my comment when you just went to Vatican, which is you know typically a small story. Um, I think that's an excellent point. And I was in a panel um, uh, at at the World Economic Forum. I was in in the room, actually, watching the panel. Tom Friedman chaired the panel. The Archbishop of Canterbury was on the panel, and a right-hand guy, Mathieu Ricard, to the Dalai Lama was on the panel. It was on faith. It was very interesting because you had representatives of five different faith groups, and each of them took time to say that Pope Francis is a remarkable historical figure who walks the talk, who is changing things by going the extra mile, who is reaching out to other faiths and to groups that have been disenfranchised in ways that are quite radical in the potential consequences. And um, that somebody like that, who represents a billion people, actually touches more than a billion people as other faiths look at him and say, um, this is a transformational figure. Uh, and there aren't a lot of other transformational figures on the planet. I would say, however, that it also brings up another point, which is that as we go out and we look at the stories, there's a tendency to look at stories in terms of the headlines, in terms of reporters covering the people they tend to report or, which we'll cover, which is political people or military people, and not in terms of the things that are really changing massive numbers of lives. And that tends to be religious leaders, artists, scientists, technologists, who are making changes, and Ed alluded to some scientific and technological changes, that are actually likely to be the biggest changes of 2016 or of any other year. And so I think if there's an admonition that goes to somebody who's in an audience listening to a show like this, It's while there's a tendency to do the kind of tour of the horizon that we did, if you really want to know the big changes, the epical ones, the ones that are going to touch a lot of lives, you have to turn away from the front section of the newspaper um, or um, the lead stories on the website. And you've got to go back and look at the people who are touching massive number of lives and reaching those people through their hearts or through their behaviors or through their view of the universe, as opposed to simply through the political institutions in which they, by the way, have growing distrust. And so I think that's a good place to end this podcast. I think it's been a wonderful discussion, thanks to Laura Jakes of FP and uh, Ed Luce of the Financial Times. We hope that you will join us back for another podcast next week. Uh, We are back in our groove, and we'll be producing these things on a weekly basis. So I say thank you very much from the lovely studio here at the Slate Group, which has been uh, kind enough to host me while I'm up here in New York. Uh, And I say thank you to Ed and to Lara, who are in our tiny studio high atop DuPont Circle down there in D.C. And we look forward to all of you joining us again sometime soon on Editors' Roundtable. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us.